Hey, welcome. This is a two a day here. Kind of a nice wind down, winding down here at ten eighteen on a Tuesday. And uh, you know what I'm thinking about is I got the vaccine recently. A week ago, a week ago, to, a week ago today, I got the vaccine, and I, you know I was hesitant to even mention it. It's not very interesting. Everybody you know. A lot of the people you know are probably getting it, and you know my approach to the to the vaccine is is actually the exact same as my attitude toward gun control. Where I'm not, you know, I mentioned on an episode a week or two ago how I'm not pro gun, I'm not anti gun, I'm just gun. Guns exist. I don't lean one way or the other. You know, my reaction to highly publicized mass shootings is not. Ban the guns. I understand, though, why people feel that way. If you don't understand why people's natural response is ban the guns after a shooting, I mean, you don't really understand much about people, I'm guessing. That said, I understand it, but I don't agree with it. I don't agree that we should ban all the guns. But with the vaccine, my attitude is very similar to my attitude about guns, where I'm not pro-vaccine, I'm not anti-vaccine. Vaccines are here. And that's not the thing I'm going to fight. But that said, just like with the gun argument, I understand why people are anti-vaccine. Because it bothers me when people are like, hey, look at these stupid freaking people. People are stupid for not wanting the vaccine. It's just an excuse to hate somebody. You know, like people, you, you see it. People are looking for so many excuses to hate people. And the vaccine is is yet another one. It's like, I mean, it's so absurdly hilarious, you know, how it just ends up being everything. Because I understand why people are skeptical about the vaccine. Even when you get beyond so-called conspiracy theories surrounding vaccines that aren't new. But even when you get beyond the conspiracy theories about them, just the fact that they rushed a vaccine... There's been very little time to observe its long-term effects. They're trying to force people to do it. There's discussion of, you know, vaccine passports, which sounds like a stupid band name. Hey, we're Vaccine Passport. Hey, we're called Vaccine Passport. We're looking for a record deal. You know, that's what it sounds like to me. It's just nonsense. That's a, You know, it's the stupid future I always talk about. Well, I don't think people are stupid. Like We've ended up with this stupid future where words are stupid. We, we pair up stupid words. You know, it's not like things get... Techni- you know, like our technical language just hit a dead end. And it sounds like people are talking about nonsense. Vaccine passport. What does that even mean? We know what it means. We know kind of what it means. I don't even know. I don't even, I don't even pay attention to the conversation. But anyway, you know, I had to go to the doctor for another reason. I wasn't planning on getting the vaccine anytime soon, but they offered it to me, and I just said, sure. They said, do you want the Coronivi Vax? They actually said that to me. They said, do you want the Coronivi Vax? Vivax. And I couldn't believe it because the, everybody's using my phrase now. Even the just the random young nurse, you know, everybody. 
nurse wasn't young. I don't know why I said the nurse was young. She wasn't. She was older than I was. She's still young because you're still young. Anybody under the age of 80 is young. No, but she asked me, you know, I wasn't expecting to get it. They asked me, so I said, sure. And I feel like I couldn't possibly come up with any other response, any other attitude toward the vaccine other than, do you want it? Oh, sure. Oh, I guess so. That's how I feel about it. It's just sort of like, oh, okay. I wasn't even thinking about getting it. But I know, you know, it's not, it's just not the thing I'm going to fight. It's not the thing, you know, as people say, the hill that I'm going to die on. I just, I don't have it in me to fight that fight. And I don't care enough about that particular fight. And uh, so it's just, it's the same as my gun argument. I'm not pro-vaccine. I'm not anti-vaccine. I'm just vaccine. And I truly am vaccine now because I've been vaccinated. But that said, I completely understand why people aren't comfortable with it. In this particular instance, too, even beyond the whole anti-vaccine argument that's been going on forever, I understand why in this particular instance somebody is skeptical. Because we have so many reasons to be skeptical of everything. You know, the inconsistent, you know, science that's, that's gone alongside. It's like, trust the science. And then it's like, the science changes every month. A year ago today, they were telling us, that you have to cover your ears because coronavirus is going to get into your eyeballs and your ears. Wash your vegetables when you get home from the grocery store. I, I mean, I saw a thing from some some expert. Who are these experts? I don't even know who they are. They come out of the woodwork. They crawl out of the woodwork like termites. And uh, I saw something about a year ago where you know some expert was like. When you get your, your groceries home from the grocery store, leave the non-perishable items in your garage for, for 48 hours. I actually saw something like that. It was, I think it said 20, at least 24 hours. Leave, leave the non-perishables in your garage for, for, for 48 hours. You know, it was this thing where it's going to, and they, people were saying it's going to get in through your eyeballs and your ear holes. And so, you know, trust the science, but the science is changing. And that's the beauty of the scientific process, is it is fluid. But don't get dogmatic about it. You know, I talked enough about that last episode. Did my normal. I mean, I think I just have to get a, a good anti-science rant. And of course, it's not anti-science, but I, I have to express myself. I have to express my attitudes about science once a month. I have to let it all out once a month, I feel like. I, otherwise, I just get too upset. <laughs> no, I, I don't feel that upset about anything right now, actually. I, I really don't. I have some other stuff I'm focused on. Yeah, I'm just dealing with some other stuff, so it's too hard to get focused, uh, too hard to get upset about what else is going on in the world. and It's too hard for me to care about vaccines, but I just want to finish that thought of I do completely understand people's skepticism, like the inconsistent science over the last year, all of the politicization of medicine and science. Thank you, nurse. Heroes work here. Of course, you know, people in medicine do heroic things. There are heroes. But like, that's kind of a whole other thing. I don't know that I've, I've really ever talked about it on here. But it's like the idea of making any one profession a hero. I mean, it's like police officers where there are heroic cops, which makes you a Republican saying that today. Oh, there are heroic cops out there. 
guess what? Now I'm I'm far right. I'm far right because there are because I recognize that there are cops who do amazing things. I would never say that every single police officer is a hero because he's a cop. I would never say that. It's not true. And so I feel the same way about medicine, you know, where it's like not every single doctor, not every single nurse, even in this wild pandemonium of coronavirus, not every single one is a hero. You know, it's nice to show some respect. I like, I like any, you know, respect is a infinite resource. If you feel it, if it's authentic, the thing is we show so much false respect. You know, we we show so much false respect, but if you actually feel respectful towards someone or something, that is an infinite resource, and expressing that, it's not going to run out because you did that. It's like love, where it was such a, a big thing when I realized that, oh, love is an infinite resource as long as I actually authentically feel it. Anything that you, anything that has authenticity that comes from a real place inside of you is not going to run out as long as you feel that way. And uh, do I, so do I have respect for the doctors and the nurses? Sure. But, uh, you know, they're like anything else. To me, it's like saying, like, I just want to show some respect for all the heroes out there, artists. It's like I would never say that all artists are admirable or heroic. Like anytime you take an entire group of people who does a certain thing, who hold a certain profession, who do a certain activity, whatever it is, who have a certain identity based on what they do, you know, I never generalize and say they're all great, they're all good. Because I just, you know, I don't know, even if, even if their job requires them to help people. It always, they are, it, it never really feels authentic. Never really feels authentic. That said, you know, if, if that's what someone needed, if doctors and nurses in the last year, if what kept them going was random applause, there was something that happened where it was like at, at four o'clock on Wednesday, and it would be a Wednesday too, at four o'clock on Wednesday, everybody's going to stand on their front porch and clap. So that all the heroes in the hospital hear it. If that keeps someone going, if they appreciate that. But it's like it's one of those things where people will do that to, to soldiers. And I mean, I worked with a, a soldier who didn't like people to thank him. While his experience in war, like, I mean, he was in, you know, the wars and everything, the wars, while that was, you know, obviously meant something to him, Veterans Day was important. He didn't like random people to come up and go, oh, thank you for your service. Thank you for your service. Is there anything I can do for you? You know, it wasn't something that he liked. And, and I, I know, but it, it depends. Some people like that. Some people don't. People want different levels of attention and acknowledgement in different ways. Anyway, enough of that. Just, uh, it's just kind of, it's one of those things where it's like, I, I, just, I guess I just never really think about an entire group of people as one thing even if what they do is admirable or helpful in some way I don't know it's just not how my brain naturally thinks and I'm cool with that just want to thank all the artists out there oh my god I want to thank all the artists who got me through coronavirus 
no, you you people made it worse. <laughs> I, I'm one of them too. I'm one of them. No, you didn't make it worse. You just made it exactly what it is. You made it exactly what it is. Uh, but anyway, yeah, vaccinated. You know, the only thing like I thought about, which is more of a joke than anything, is like I get the vaccine and suddenly my opinions change. You start to notice on this show. Like I get the vaccine in the next episode of the show I do. I'm like, you know what? I think we could, I think we need to put some guardrails on free speech. I think we need to put some guardrails. I've never heard anybody say that, but that's my like mocking the sort of person who's like hate speech. We, I think we need to hate speech is not free speech. If I started saying that hate speech is not free speech, Free speech? You mean hate speech? I mean, let's put some guardrails on, on this. We need to put some guardrails around what people are saying. If I start saying things like that. If I start saying, oh, did you guys see the, the latest uh, the latest photo of Obama bin Biden playing with his dog? You see the latest photo of Obama bin Biden and his wife, Dr. Biden? You see the latest photo of Dr. Biden playing with the, with Obama's dog? If I started saying shit like that. You'd know the vaccine was something horrible. You would know if I suddenly started saying that. Maybe it's gradual. Maybe I'll I'll gradually start slipping in opinions like that. I'll gradually do PSAs where I'm like, I just want to take this moment to thank all the heroes, or as you know them, artists. You know, I'm going to start talking like that. That's how you know the vaccine is a problem. But so far, so good. So far, so good on that front. You know, I do have this, uh, you know, sometimes I'm like, hey, uh, I would prefer for this show to be more positive. Especially because I feel generally positive. I feel, at the very least, I feel pretty neutral. I feel pretty equanimous. Equanimous. And uh, as a result, you know, I, I don't necessarily like the idea of just ranting and raving, but I realize that's what the, that, that's the whole point of this. I should never second guess that because that's one one of the points of this is to go off because you need to do that. And I think to doing it in a controlled way in a certain place, it's like some people have a pillow that they hump, a specific pillow. I mean, my dog has two very specific toys that he will hump, and those, those are the only toys. Those are the only ones. Those are the ones that he likes to do that to. And so I think having a, a very specific thing where you do a very specific thing. So I think like rant, obviously ranting. And I mean, that's what I like to listen to, too, because the reality is, while sometimes I am in the mood for something a little more positive, especially something of a spiritual nature, uh, something, you know, not necessarily uplifting, but something that reinforces that neutrality, if nothing else. Well, sometimes I'm in the mood to hear that. When I want to be entertained, I, I usually want to hear people ranting. I usually want to hear some sort of humorous criticism of something. I mean, that's what most good comedy, that's what most comedy that I've enjoyed throughout my life is. You know, some sort of humorous observation, you know, it's a criticism. Because how can you observe things without being critical? But sometimes I will be like, oh, yeah, this show's just, all it is is just me fuming. But that said, that's what it is. But I do have something kind of, a little bit more positive to say now that I think about it. 
Because something that I've realized is it's very easy for me to not accept something on principle. Or it's very easy for me to reject something based on the initial taste I get in my mouth. And, you know, I'm a big Michael Moorcock fan. I'm a fan of the the author Michael Moorcock. I've talked about him a lot. talked about some different books. Whenever I do that occasional book review episode, the book review segment, I'll often mention Michael Moorcock the last couple of years. I've become a big fan the last couple of years. I mean, it almost feels like every other book I read these days is Michael Moorcock. And I love, you know, his, his work is great. Even the books that were a little that I wasn't terribly excited about while I was reading them, the ones where I did kind of have a thought in my head where I was like, hey, I'm looking forward to this being over. Even those ended up being worthwhile. I'm glad I read them. One of those was Behold the Man, which I read last fall. Kind of like, you know, this theological fiction, which is just not going to be something that appeals to me. I'm interested in religion, but just this idea of this, like, theologic, theologically influenced fiction a Jesus story, a fictional Jesus story. It's just not going to do it for me typically, but it was a good book worth reading, Behold the Man. There was another one he did that was about a guy losing his mind in a spaceship. The entire book took place in a spaceship, and it was just a guy losing his mind. It was a little more experimental. You know, The writing style was, even for Michael Moorcock, who is very adventurous, but he always manages to bring it home. He always manages to make it count which is why I like him. And he, you know, he's able to do a lot of different things too. You know, his a lot of his work is sci-fi and or fantasy. But I'm reading uh Dancers at the Edge of Time right now, which is a series of stories compiled into one. I mean, they're all connected. It's all it's one ongoing story split up into several different stories. And I read the first chapter a week ago, and I just thought, I don't like this. I don't like this. Because it was just, it's its very absurd and surreal. You know, it's characters who exist at the end of time. It's like these, it's a thousand, a thousand centuries in the future, something like that. And it's the end of time, and people are basically, they live this decadent uh what do you call it, uh, hedonistic lifestyle where they can manifest anything they want. They, they essentially use magic to just manifest everything they want from their surroundings to objects. And they're very, uh, oh, darling. You know, they, they say shit like that where it's just like, oh, darling. And they all sleep with each other like man, woman, or child. It doesn't really make a difference. Because nothing matters anymore, and they've lost the ability to feel what humans feel. So they basically just entertain themselves, and the first chapter is just all that. Or I think it's like it's like the main character talking to his mom, and you know I think he, I think he sleeps with his mom. You know, it's just there's no boundaries to anything in this end of time. But it also has this sort of absurd surrealist humor to it. There's a, a lake called Lake Billy the Kid. And, it's, and as it says in the story, Billy the Kid was, you know, a scientist and an explorer and, and this and that. It's like they have this warped view of history. And it's just that kind of stuff isn't very funny to me. I don't know if it's meant to be funny, but it is this sort of absurdist humor. And so reading the first chapter, I was just it's like a character lives under a lake 
called Lake Billy the Kid and hosts a party there. And it's this extravagant, decadent, end-of-time party. And I was just reading that first chapter, and I was like, I don't like this. I don't want to read this. And then that night, I'd read it early in the day, and then that night, I was looking at the book. I actually put the book, I actually took my bookmark out because I decided I wasn't going to read it now. But I I thought, you know, I was like, if I don't read this now after reading the first chapter, I'm never going to want to read it. Because I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to associate this book with a bad taste. And if I don't want to read it now, when am I ever going to want to pick it up? And so I was like, I'm going to give it a chance. I'm going to read a little bit more. I'm going to invest a little bit more in this book. And I don't like the cover either. The cover rubs me the wrong way too. It's got like a guy in a top hat with an ascot. You know, one of those like white fluff, fluffy, kind of like a tie. I don't, I'm sure you know what an ascot is. I barely know what it is. And I'm looking at it now. It's like a guy, yeah, he's like in a in a long coat with a top hat and uh, an ascot. And he's like talking to some weird looking woman who I, I think is supposed to be his mom. But she's she looks the same age as he does because they live, they're all immortal. Everybody at the end of time is immortal. And I'm not giving anything away because you would know this just from reading the first chapter. And the story doesn't even start at that point. And there's like these little cherubs flying around. And there's like a moon, and it's sort of like this steampunk aesthetic too. The book doesn't end up being very steampunk at all. Maybe the slightest, slightest bit, slightest, slightest. But the cover kind of gives that impression, and the first chapter could, you know, it could give the wrong impression. Like absurdist, surrealist humor with, you know, the slightest, slightest hint of steampunk or something, and that's just not going to do it for me. But I ended up reading the next two chapters, chapter two and three, Dear Diary. I read the next two chapters. And I got into it. I wanted to keep reading. And so I'm so glad I did. Now I'm like more than halfway through the book, and it's a big book. And I'm just, I'm so glad I did. I'm so glad that I didn't let that first taste ruin it for me. And it helps that, of course, I'm a fan of the author. Because so far, Michael Moorcock has never done me wrong. So far, I've read quite a few of his books now. I've been reading his books. Like I said, it feels like every other book. Every, every, like one out of every three books, it feels like in the last two years that I've read has been Michael Moorcock. And so far, he hasn't done me wrong. Even sometimes when I, I'm kind of bored, like reading the Elric series, like around the, mid, the midpoint through the Elric series, especially the dream sequences. And I've gone on about dream sequences, how... I don't like it when people in real life tell me about their dreams, unless I'm in it, because that, you know, tickles my narcissism. But unless I'm in their dream, or the dream is really phenomenally interesting in some way, most people telling you about their dreams, as as crazy as dreams are, as fascinating as the idea of dreams are, I just find it really boring when I'm hearing about someone's dreams. And even worse than that are dream sequences in books. You know, I was talking, I was criticizing The Wheel of Time recently, how I had to give up after four or five books. I think I gave up during the fifth book. I think that was, I think that's why I can't remember whether I read four or five of The Wheel of Time books, because I believe I gave up during the fifth book. I was just like, I can't do it. And that's a case where, like, I gave those, I go, I gave those a chance. 
I, and I, the reality is, am I ever going to want to read all like 14 of them? Even though I own most of them, even though I own maybe all of them, the reality is, am I ever going to make it through those? And like looking at those two, like the seventh book is like double the size of every other one, which are already really long. And it's like, am I ever really going to want to read through this? The first book was really good. Even though it wasn't the most original, you know, even though there's some obvious Tolkienisms, it was, I still really enjoyed the first Wheel of Time book. And it felt, too, at the end, like the story could have been wrapped right there. It's almost like the show Freaks and Geeks, where, you know, that, that was a good show. It's been many years since I watched it, but that was a really good show. I saw it later. I saw it after it was out on DVD and really enjoyed it. But I remember people saying, like friends of mine saying, like, oh, that sucks so much that it ended after one season. And I'm like, why? Like, it, it ends on the perfect note. Like, she goes off to college. Yeah, there, there's more potential. Like, it would have been cool to see the other characters. It would have been cool to see what else they did with it. But it ends on a good note. And how often do things not end on a good note? How often does creativity end up sucking? How often do bands make shitty albums? How often do shows go bad? Even The Sopranos. I don't like the sixth season. Every time I've rewatched The Sopranos, I get the same feeling early on in the sixth season. This has nothing to do with the way they ended the last episode, which I like. I'm actually a fan of the way they ended the last episode. Like, it's not that there's no, nothing good. Like, The Sopranos is my favorite show of all time. So I like parts of the sixth season. I like some of the storylines. But there's also shit. There's also stuff in the sixth season that is shit. Excuse my language, but we're talking about The Sopranos, so I will swear. And you know, you can pick up on things, you know, I mean, on The Sopranos, like there's stuff that goes on in season four where you're kind of like, oh, this is, you know, definitely veering into soap opera territory. But there is a distinctly different feeling I get every time I watch the last season. So I wouldn't say The Sopranos went bad, but just that there's kind of a shift. I'm not as into the sixth season whenever I've seen it. And, uh, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's, so it's so often things go bad. So often bands make disappointing albums. And once things go bad like that, very rarely does the ship get righted. Very rarely. I mean, it's all, it seems almost impossible in some cases after a certain amount of time. So the fact that something like Freaks and Geeks actually ends on a, an extremely good note. Like, you enjoy every single episode through the end of that, that show. Because it's one season, it's like a long movie that ends perfectly. And you don't need a sequel. There's, you're, left want, you're not left wanting anything. And it's, it's a way better feeling to think, oh, they should have made a second season, than it is to think, God, it sucks they made ten seasons. It sucks that they milked that for ten seasons. I'd much rather think, oh... They ended it on a good note, and it would have been interesting to see what else they did. But I guess I'm just happy with what I got with something like that. But The Wheel of Time, like, if I was feeling the way I did after even the second book, even on the second book, I remember thinking, eh, you know, I'm not, as, I'm not enjoying this as much. And by the third book, I don't remember what happens. I, I have no idea what happens in the last, I, I mean, I have no idea what happens after the first book. But... Uh, you know, with Michael Moorcock, like the Elric series, around the midway point, there were some moments where I remember thinking, like, eh, you know, 
this feels there's dream oh the dream sequences is what got me going on that because the wheel of time has a bunch of dream sequences and every time they would come up i'm like this is just so uninteresting I'm already reading a book, which is itself a dream. I don't need an entire chapter devoted to some character's dream and the symbols and what it means. Then we have to deal with the analysis because it's not just that the character has a dream in the book and they devoted an entire chapter to it, but they're going to reference that dream in subsequent chapters. And so now you're going to have to deal with freaking dream analysis in this book. And the whole point of reading a book is the book itself is a dream. I'm not saying they shouldn't have care. I'm not saying that <laughs> that authors shouldn't allow their characters to dream and that it shouldn't play any role. But whenever an author uses dreams in a story, especially an ongoing story, a series of books, it ends up, it feels like a lazy moment where they're like, oh, I'm, I'm not very inspired to write this next chapter. So I'm going to make it a dream chapter. And in a dream chapter, you can do whatever you want because it's a dream. So it's it always comes across lazy to me, and it's just it just ends up being a waste of time. I don't know. If you're going to write a dream sequence in a book, make it quick and don't do it a lot. But every time you every time you come across the first one, very rarely will you come across the first dream sequence, and that's it. Usually, that means that they're going to continue to use it as a crutch. Where every once in a while, you're going to have to read an entire chapter of a character dreaming about something. Oh, she was there, and this happened, and then I I saw the bad guy, and the bad guy's face, it turned out, was me. <laughs> you know, and then a bird flew overhead, and, you know, what does the bird mean? Oh, and then the character sees that bird later, and whatever it is. I'm just ter- not terribly into that. Although some people are. Some people love dreams. and I mean, The Sopranos did that too. The Sopranos started doing this dream thing that I never liked. And then you have to... It's not just that Tony has these weird, surreal dreams where Dr. his girlfriend turns into Dr. Melfi and then Dr. Melfi's voice is his mother's or whatever it is. You know, it's not just that. It's like then he's going to have to describe it at his psychotherapy session. So again, a dream in a story in a fictional story, is never just a dream. It's something you're going to have to endure the character talking about for chapters to come, and you're also going to have to endure more dreams. So it's just not something I enjoy, obviously here. Obviously here. But in Elric, there's some dream sequences too. And, you know, I remember, like, reading through the dream sequences, or there's there's some where he goes back in time and kind of inhabits, like, another version of himself... And that kind of stuff I was just I wasn't terribly into. There's some there's definitely some boring moments. But overall, like by the time I was at the end of the Elric series, in typical Michael Moorcock fashion, I'm just like, dang, this is this is so well done. The way he wraps up the last main Elric book. You know, I know he he did Elric at the end of time, speaking of the end of time. He did do that, which my friend sent me. But the last book in like the main storyline of Elric just closes it perfectly. And so even though there were lulls, and, even, and some of that might have just been my interest level. You know, some of that might not even have been the story. It might have been, you know, partially me. But anyway, uh, Dancers at the Edge of Time. I'm glad I didn't judge the entire book. Not only by its cover, but also the first chapter, because I was willing to put it away, and I know that I never would have wanted to read it again.
that would have been it. Meanwhile, the last week I've been completely entertained. I've been looking forward to reading Dancers at the Edge of Time every night. So thank goodness I didn't let that first chapter color the whole experience. And that's an important thing to remember. Like, this does, even though I just ranted about dream sequences in fiction, uh, this is a positive message here, which is keep going sometimes. See what else the book has. You know, you don't want to get halfway through the book and realize that you're never going to enjoy it. But, you know, sometimes read past the first chapter. If it's by an author you trust, you know, trust plays a big role in some of these things. It's like if someone recommends you something and it's someone whose taste you completely trust, you'll give it a chance. You'll listen to it a little bit differently. If a friend who has similar taste in music, who is a tastemaker that you trust, if they recommend you music, you're going you're gonna to hear it a little bit differently than you would someone else. So if it's an author that has already done you right, give it a chance. And then uh, along a, the similar lines, you know, I mentioned principle, like I have certain principles where it's like, you know, I'm never going to click on an ad. And if someone sends me something that is in the spirit of spam, I'm going to reject it, right, you know, based on, it's just going to be pr- on principle. And sometimes someone will send you a message or an email or something directly, and even though it's sent directly to you, it's not automated, it's in the nature of spam, it's in the spirit of spam. And that happened to me, I guess it was yesterday, where I got a, a guy added me on social media or who I'd never heard of, and he didn't seem to be connected to anybody I knew. And then that morning, he sent me a, a message where he was like, uh, "Hey, I see you liked a a post by this. There, there's an older French electroacoustic artist that I'm a big fan of, Christian Renew. He had a project called Broom, B R U M E. I don't. Now I've never figured out if it's pronounced Broom or Brume. He's French, Brume." Brume. I don't know how you pronounce that. I say broom, not to be confused with a a sweeping broom, but broom, Christian Renew, French electroacoustic. You know, it's a genre kind of related to noise, just experimental music. Phenomenal artist. I'm a huge Christian Renew fan. But this guy messaged me and he said, I see that you liked this post by Christian Renew last year, and I wanted to let you know I, I recorded something that is influenced by him and he sent me a link to his music page where you could listen to it and just on principle I was offended I was like I don't know this guy this is clearly some kind of copy paste thing he sent to everybody who he saw like he he looked at at this post and saw that a bunch of people liked it last year apparently and decided to send them all a message recommending his music that's influenced by that. I was a little bit intrigued, though, because I've never heard somebody who sounds like Christian Renew or Broom. I'm sure many people are influenced by him, but I've never heard somebody who actually says they're influenced by him or sounds like they're influenced by him. So I admittedly was a little bit curious, but on principle, I thought, yeah, I don't know who this guy is. I don't really like the spammy message he sent me. Even though I understand he's just promoting his stuff. And if this guy for some reason were to hear this, you know, this, this story has a happy ending. So just keep listening. 
don't, I don't know why this guy would be listening to this, but uh, I guess I'm, I'm always self-conscious of that. I'm just always because I have had weird, I have had unexpected people hear things I say on here, and it just always catches me off guard when they tell me. I've never had somebody be upset about it, but I've just it, it makes me uncomfortable. It makes me uncomfortable to know that this thing that I release somewhat publicly actually gets heard occasionally by an unexpected person. But anyway, this guy, you know, he sent this thing to me and I ignored it because I was just like, I don't want to, I feel, I, I just on principle, I don't, I don't like it when you, you basically are sending me an advertisement. You basically sent me junk mail, but in a, in a weird direct way where you added me on social media or to do it. But anyway, a little bit later, he messages me again after I didn't reply. And then, you know, he he complimented some stuff that I've done. And it, so that scratched my ego. I don't think he'd even heard, I don't think he knew who I was. But I think after he contacted me, he maybe looked me up or something. And uh, I just thought, oh, well, at least he did, this guy did his homework. If he didn't know who I was before, he did his homework. And he scratched my ego. And so I was like, you know what? I was tempted to listen to what he sent me because I was curious what somebody would do with a, with an influence like Christian Renew. Assuming that's just not total nonsense, you know what I mean? Because anybody can say they're influenced by anything. And it seems like more often than not, when I hear something is influenced by something and it sounds, you know, nothing like it, it sounds awful. You know, I'm constantly hearing about things that are allegedly influenced by things I like. And then when you hear them, you're like, this is terrible. I don't even hear the influence. And sometimes that's good. Like sometimes not hearing the influence is a good thing, but sometimes it's not because it's just bad. Uh, but anyway, so I, I did end up listening to this guy's music and it was absolutely phenomenal. This guy's music was incredible. I could hear the influence. I could definitely hear the influence, and I probably would have noticed the influence. I probably would have drawn a parallel, even if he hadn't told me that it was influenced by Christian Renew. But because he did tell me, I heard it even more. I probably would have been able to make the connection, but it wasn't like it was derivative. It wasn't like I was listening to a tribute. I mean, we're talking about experimental music here, so it's not like he was doing covers and experimental music is so funny in that way, because when I got into it, you know, I remember having this feeling where it was like, you can't tell people you have any influences because it's experimental music. If it's experimental music, how could you possibly be influenced by something? But the reality is, is that all good music is experimental music, of course. Like even music, all innovative, iconoclastic music, whether it's played whether it's rock and roll, whether it's heavy metal, whether it's anything, all truly good music is experimental on some level, which is kind of an annoying point to make. All music that's good is experimental. All orig Simply writing an original riff on a guitar is experimental. But no, when I say experimental music, obviously I'm referring to something specific, you know. I already mentioned electroacoustic, you know, music concrete. Noise, you know, some some industrial noise, ambient music. I've been involved in that stuff for many years. I'm barely involved anymore, but it, I, I always keep it alive. I always keep a little bit of it alive, even though my life isn't as connected to it as it once was. But uh, with that stuff, you know, it's a lot of it's heavily derivative. 
And you just have to accept that. You have to accept that this has been around for a long time. There are only so many ways to express yourself. So, of of course, a lot of so-called experimental music is going to be very similar. It's going to be influenced by other experimental music. It's going to be derivative in a good way as well as bad. And so you just have to accept that, you know, trying to act like experimental music is coming out of some void. You know, while there are a lot of original people, the long, the more the time passes, the less original it's going to be. That's just the reality. You can see with aesthetic trends, the way people present their work, are you know, visually, you can see trends in that. You can hear trends in, in the sounds. And one trend that I've never seen is people who you know, ac- accurately capture something similar to Christian Renew's sound, the broom sound. So the fact that this guy was able to do it and do it so well impressed me. And I told him that. Even though on principle, my first response to what he sent me was, how dare you? How dare you? My first response was, was how dare you send me spam on my private social media account? I don't even know you. But you know what? I'm glad that he scratched my ego a little bit. Scratching someone's ego goes a long way. It really does. Uh, And all it it means is that that guy acknowledged that he did his homework or something, or he did know who I was. Not that I'm any, you know, I'm I'm an obscure person. But uh, that goes a long way. If you're trying to, like, contact somebody to to share something you did. If you're trying to promote yourself to somebody, scratching their ego, you know, levels the playing field a bit. You're not just throwing something at them. You're you're handing them a catcher's mitt and then throwing them a ball. Scratch people's ego a little bit. Acknowledge people. Cuz that's all it is. It's not even it really has nothing to do with ego. It's not like I was like, "Yay, it darn right you compliment something I did." It wasn't like I felt that way at all. It was just simply, "Oh, you acknowledged the human that you were promoting your work to. And you know what? I'm going to return the favor because I actually am curious about what somebody does with a broom influence. And you you knocked it out of the, out of the park. Keep it the baseball idea. This guy really did an incredible job with it. So it's kind of a similar example to the Michael Moorcock thing. You know, all this happened in less than a week. All this happened in less than a week. Um, but, uh, you know, I was ready to throw this Michael Moorcock, you know, into the closet. I was ready to throw this Dancers at the Edge of the Time book into the closet and probably never read it again. Because I read one chapter and I was just like, I, I don't like this absurdist, surreal, this surrealist, absurd, goofy humor, Lake Billy the Kid. Are you kidding me? Lake Billy the Kid. Oh, that's oh, that's funny, dude. I was ready to throw it all away for that. And guess what? I'm so glad I didn't because this book is fantastic. I was ready to dismiss this guy for sending me a a self-promotional message. And you know what? He did a great job. And I, I didn't just listen to the thing he sent me. I listened to all of his online work. I listened to everything he had available. I spent my morning listening to that. And it was invigorating. And, and what's amazing, too, what I, this is what I like about some people. This guy, he didn't seem to be connected to any scene. Because the thing, like just like I was talking about, experimental music has been around long enough to where a lot of it's derivative, for better and worse. A lot of it is, 
influences other people. So there's you know entire scenes and communities built around this thing that in theory you know in theory it shouldn't have you know in theory like something like experimental music should just be these people who operate in their own little voids spread out around the world but the reality is people come up with similar ideas they have a similar appreciation for something and the longer something is around the more dense and tight the network is going to get and uh, you know so scenes form of some kind Whatever counts for a scene, for lack of a better word, you know, those, those are going to form. But what I liked about this guy, too, is I'm apparently his biggest fan now. But what I liked about him, too, is he doesn't seem to be connected to anything. Like, I was looking at the aesthetic he uses, and it's just sort of these, like, Photoshop filter images with just, like, a, a font that, that nobody involved in noise or experimental music would ever use. Like, his work was sonically way more impressive than the visuals. But the visuals were nice because it was clear that he's not trying to go for... He's not trying to recreate this aesthetic that somebody did in the 80s. He's not trying to rip off what someone he know did yesterday, which is what you see in scenes. It's not even... I don't even mean that to sound scathing or harsh, but just any time a scene forms around something... You're going to have people who are going for something. They're going for something. And this guy, clearly, visually, he wasn't. He's just going for, you know, just some something that matches his sounds. And the sounds are just impressive. Extremely well recorded, extremely well put together. So I think it's great. I think it's great. And it's it's just like the Michael Moorcock book because I was just, I was ready to just dismiss it. I was even a little irritated and I had no reason to be. It's like I looked at a message of a thing that I wasn't going to look at. But all it took was him acknowledging me, you know, and uh, I decided to give it a chance because I was curious. And you know what? I even told another friend about it, just like I'm telling you about it. Uh, but no, I, I, I told a, I have a friend who's a huge Broom fan, a, a guy I've known for many years through music, uh, Nick G, who listens to this show. But uh, I told Nick G about it because I'm like, hey, this guy... This guy's onto something here. Even though the influence is obvious, sometimes it's nice when someone is able to do that. Like, sometimes you want somebody who does something similar to somebody else, especially when very few people have managed to do it. I mean, like, anybody can write write riffs that sound like Celtic Frost. And so there are a lot of bands that do just that. But if you really like the way Celtic Frost sounds, but you're sick of listening to Celtic Frost, you might just want to listen to a Celtic Frost tribute band. Not a cover band, but just a band who's devoted their sound to sounding like Celtic Frost. But those are a dime a dozen. And, uh, you know, but every once in a while, a band will accurately, if not recreate, it just, at least just like decently mimic a band with a much more unique sound, and you go, you know what, I don't love that they're going for something that, in its essence, shouldn't be reproduced. I don't like that they think that they can get a piece of that, but they're doing a good job, and sometimes you just want to hear that. Sometimes that's what you want to listen to. I don't listen to enough music these days to do that. I don't listen to enough music to really want to stray from the sources 
But at the same time, when you're actively listening to a lot of music, you kind of have a need for that sometimes. And and in this, in the case of this man, this fellow, you know, he managed to show a, a really solid influence from an artist that is very rare, very difficult to mimic. And the result isn't entirely derivative, but it's like it, it definitely it scratches that itch, as they say. Not any more to say about that. But it, there's two examples of things where it's like my initial impulse. And I think when I was younger, not not that, not that I would have responded to those exact situations the same way. But when I was younger, I, I know that I was different in some ways. You know, while I'm still the same person, I don't like the whole I've changed thing. Because the second you start thinking you've changed, suddenly you're forced into a situation where you realize how little you've actually changed, or you find yourself snapping back. You get kind of lazy. So I never try to just be like, I've completely changed. Because, I mean, that's something people do even, like, somebody who tries to get their ex-girlfriend back, and they're like, hey, Sally, I changed. I changed. I promise. I promise I changed. The next thing she knows, things are exactly the same. She takes him back, and things are exactly the same. You don't want to do that to yourself. You don't want to tell yourself, I've changed. And then realize you're doing the same exact things you've always done. But that said, you know, you have to acknowledge the small ways in which you do change. And by acknowledging the small ways in which you've changed, you know, the bigger picture of that is that you may have changed in a large way. And, uh, but, uh, with, uh, with myself, you know, there was definitely a long time in my life where if I didn't like something on principle or because the first taste in my mouth gave me a certain impression, I would just dismiss it outright. And usually I had no idea what I was talking about. Usually I had no idea what I was doing. I would just spit things out. And I missed out on a lot that way. You know, while I think I stayed true to myself in many ways, I think it was with ideas in particular that I did that. You know, I think I was always true to my taste. Like, I don't think that I rejected any music that I should have liked when I was younger, you know, within reason. But with ideas in particular, you know, I've talked about that on here, where there are some things that, to me, they were so cliche, they were such obvious platitudes that I couldn't possibly accept them, or I didn't like the aesthetic of them, I didn't like the way they were presented, therefore how could I possibly like that thing? But getting past that has been extremely influential on me as a human being. Being able to say, hey, I don't like the aesthetic of that. I don't like the way that is presented to me. I don't like the person who's presenting it. But you know what? I'm going to stick around a little bit longer. I'm going to give it a chance for a little bit longer. Let's see how this impacts me if I actually pay attention and listen to it. Oh, I don't like that idea because I don't like the type of person who talks about that idea. Just on a gut level, I'm not attracted to the sort of person who talks about that thing a lot. But you know what? As I've gotten older, I go, you know, I'm going to give it a chance. And, and the result is often something good. Sometimes not. Sometimes it's it's a waste of time. But if I can get one good thing from something, if I can get one good thought, that is good enough for me. Because how often do you get that? Well, if you have an open mind, you might get it more than you expect. 
But in general, it's 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 like the idea I've talked about where it's like just having one person listen to you. Just having the person that you're sitting in the same room with listen to you while you're talking is sometimes an incredible accomplishment. It's that acknowledgement, you know, it's to simply have the person that you are spending time with hear the words you are saying as you are saying them is sometimes a great accomplishment because we do get so distracted, we do get so bored, we do tune so many things out. It's the same idea when I say, like, if you can just get one good idea out of something. Like, sometimes I'll read a book, especially nonfiction, and if I get one good idea from that book... That seems like a good use of my time. Like even if some of the even if the rest of the book, you know, I kind of have to endure it. Even if I'm kind of waiting for the book to be finished, if I can just get one good idea that I can add, you know, if I if I can add that idea to my system, it was worth doing. And the same goes for listening to people, the same goes for checking things out. So, I try to take that approach and, and you know with the stuff I was just talking about, with the Michael Moorcock book, you know, fiction's a little bit different because you know, one good paragraph in a fiction book, that's usually not good enough for me. Like one good paragraph in fiction, to me doesn't, or one good sentence or something, one good idea in a fiction book, usually that's not enough to keep me coming back. Usually that's not worth it. Because fiction is about the story. If I'm reading fiction, the whole story usually has to be good. Or there has to be something fairly substantial in the book that makes me interested. You know, there has to be something substantially in- interesting. But nonfiction, I don't necessarily feel that way. With nonfiction, my attitude is much more like if there's one good idea in here, if if one thing causes me to have an epiphany, that's a pretty incredible experience and it's worth reading. And I feel the same way about people. If If one idea, especially who it's a person that I'm Maybe on a just a gut level opposed to, averse to, you know, someone who makes me want to turn around and walk the other way. But if they can communicate one good idea, if an idea can travel across the chasm of boredom, the chasm of, of even disgust, maybe I'm disgusted about someone just completely disgusts me. But they say something that travels across the chasm of boredom, disgust, whatever's in that nasty negative abyss that keeps me from liking that person or wanting to like them. If one idea can travel across that while I'm listening to them, be it a lecture, be it a video, whatever it is, be it being in the same room as them, that's good enough for me and that makes it worthwhile. And that's an approach that people are lacking. Because people see someone and they think that person stands for this, that person stands for that. I don't want to hear anything they have to say because it's all bad. Meanwhile, you might very well get a life-changing idea from them if you just listen, if you just allow it to travel across that chasm. And if an idea can travel across that chasm, that is a strong idea. If something can you know, open your mind despite yourself you know despite the fact that you don't even want to hear it that's usually an even stronger idea than anything that you would find on your own by looking in the obvious places you always look listening to the people that you already like so it's something to keep in mind and you know 
something that I, I go into on here on occasion. That's not a new idea on night school, the idea of ideas traveling across a chasm, especially a chasm created by dislike for another person. If an idea can travel across that, that is an impressive idea. Not entirely unrelated to me than like, if a guy can send you a spam message and then you can spend the morning listening to his music because you actually did give it a chance, not that you should do that every time, but just if, it, if, if the circumstances led you to checking this guy's music out and it ended up being impressive and you spent your morning with a, a soundtrack you never would have had otherwise that kept your interest... And you might never listen to it again. I mean, that's the reality. I might never listen to this guy's music again. If he listens to this, he'd be like, what the heck is wrong with this guy? <laughs> he was really upset about my spam message. And then uh, he uh, he might he loves my music, but he's never going to listen to it again. <laughs> uh, but, but anyway... Uh, that's a whole other, I just thought of that, like, that's a whole other level of, like, when you do a podcast, like, even though I don't really advertise this, even though I don't really share this with many people anymore, like, I hide, uh, actually, I hide it from, I found, like, a function on Instagram where you can, like, hide your stories from people, and so what I'll do is I'll, like, hide a bunch of people who I wouldn't want to listen to this show Honestly, for kind of political reasons, people who I think just might take things the wrong way. I just rather, I don't feel like this This is not a show for them. But anyway, uh, the only place that I'll ever announce it anymore is like in an Instagram story that hides most people. So it's it's really not a show that's ever advertised unless you pay attention to it. But I do, it does give you this narcissism. It does give you this vanity where you think, well, if they ever hear this, I wonder if they're going to hear this. Even though chances are extremely low of that, it does cross my mind sometimes where I'm like, I wonder if this person's going to hear this. It's like an, it's like my ears are burning, you know, you hear that, where it's like, if, if two people are talking about you, there's that saying, like, my ears are burning. It's like you almost know, you almost psychically know that somebody is thinking about you or talking about you. And I feel like if you do a podcast and you mention somebody, it's almost like you plant sub, some subconscious seed. You almost like cast some fishing line that reels them in to listen to that exact episode. Because that, like I said, that has happened to me before where I'll talk about somebody and, and nothing even necessarily bad. But there's been a couple times where it's been people that I never expected to listen to this and they contacted me and mentioned my reference to them. And I was like, man. I and it's not like they were people who actively listened either. It was just like they happened to hear, they happened to decide, I'm going to listen to that guy Eric's podcast, that guy that I haven't talked to in a long time. I'm going to listen to his podcast today. And they happen to listen to an episode where I talk about them. <laughs> it's like just bizarre. But I almost feel like it does. It's like my ears are burning. And like somehow I do cast some fishing line that reels them in to that exact moment. But it does show you like how doing something like this creates this, you know, this kind of narcissism where it's like, I wonder if they're going to listen to my show. I wonder if they're going to listen. But yeah, you know, just uh, an idea traveling across a chasm. 
being able to get past your initial your initial reaction to something where you don't want to give something a chance based on principle. Because I've mentioned it before, where I refuse to laugh at commercials. I refuse to laugh at a television commercial on principle. I, I just I won't do it. I won't allow myself to laugh at a television commercial. And first of all, I mean they don't make me laugh. I mean it helps that they it helps that I, it's not like I'm holding myself back. It's like I'm restraining myself. I really want to laugh at commercials, but I'm I'm just restraining myself from doing it because of my principles. I'm so principled. No, it's not like I'm restraining myself. It's not like there's anything going on that makes me want to laugh. But it's it's just like on principle. It's like if I get an advertisement on the internet for something that I do actually have some vague interest in. I will not look at it. I will not click on it. I will not give them the satisfaction of an imprint, as it's called. They call those imprints. When somebody clicks on a advertisement, a paid advertisement on a website, it's called an imprint, if you didn't know. And I will not give them that imprint. I will not give that to them on principle. But maybe that's the future of advertising. In the same way that this guy sent me a spammy message that was clearly copy and pasted to a bunch of people. In the same way he did that, but then he followed it up with something personalized, complimenting me. Like if advertisements turned around and did that, like if I was looking at a paid advertisement on a website and it was like, uh, buy old soldier nitro coffee brew. And then the second time I looked at it, it said, I liked your new drawing. I liked your new drawing. If the advertisement then said that, maybe I'd go, you know what? I think it's time to buy some old soldier nitro cold brew. I think it's time to buy some old soldier nitro cold brew. Because they, they said they like my drawing. That probably is the future of ads, though. Where it's like they're going to know exactly what you did. They're going to know exactly what you did today. And they're going to compliment you on it. So you're going to be like, you know what? I'll give it a chance. But, uh, you know, it, it is one of those principled things for me, though, where it's like, yeah, I won't laugh at a commercial. And, you know, it just reminds me. I always think about this because there was this girl that I had a crush on here in town. Like, I kind of consider her like, I kind of consider her like my all time, like, since I've lived in Olympia, she's like, just this girl that I always liked, and she's she's always been like a friend of a friend. Like, but I've I've partied with her and her brother over the years, and she grew up with some friends that I had who were from this town. And and you know, she and I get along. Like every time we see each other, we talk. She usually has a boyfriend. This I think the same boyfriend for a long time now. Uh, but uh, I've always liked her, and I I remember at one point I was like, I'd like to marry that girl. I think she would be a really good wife. I think she was raised really religious, but she's kind of into weird things. But uh, there was a time where I was hanging out with her and and nothing ever happened. Like I never n- have never been involved with her in any way, which just means that I'd really like I'd really like to marry her. <laughs> maybe she's going <laughs> maybe she's going to listen to this episode now. I'm not going to name her. 
But but anyway, like she she's like one of those people. She got into weed really late in life. Like she got into weed when she was thirty. Like she's older than I am. I think like a year or two older than I am, maybe. And she got into weed really late in life, and and loved it. And so, like, every time I would run into her, she'd be like, let's go smoke a bowl in the alley. And you could tell, like, she was going through, like, the same sort of experience that many of us have with weed much earlier in our life, where we're like, this is awesome, and I can do this whenever I want. You could tell she was going through that at the age of 30 or 31 or however old she was. But anyway, I was was hanging out with her and somebody else, and, like, we were smoking a bowl in, in this alley by a bar, and she was, we were, we were talking about, I don't know, just funny things, I guess. I don't know. Like, she was doing an impression. She did a really good impression of uh, a character from Daria, of all things. And uh, we were talking about, like, st- funny stuff. And my friend had told me, like, our, our our closest mutual friend had told me one time, like, just so you know, because I, I used to always talk about her. I was like, how's she doing? Like, I wasn't a creep, but I was just, it was kind of an inside joke between my friend and I that I had such a big crush on this girl. And uh, she told me once, she was like, you know, she's a huge ditz, right? Like, she's she's awesome, but, like, I don't think you realize, like, what a ditz she is. And I was like, I guess I don't. Because I, I didn't really know her that well. And we were hanging out with her, and, and she, she lived nearby, and she was like, let's go to my apartment. I want to show you this video. And it, it had some name. It was like a series of videos. It was like... I guess they were like YouTube videos or something she wanted to show us. And she was like, you haven't, it was one of those things where she was like, have you seen like the backside, the backseat driver videos? Have you seen the backseat driver videos? That's how she sounded. So if you, if you've never been to Olympia, Washington, people who are born and raised here sound that way. Have you ever seen the backseat driver videos? And uh, we were just like, no. And she's like, you haven't seen the backseat driver videos? Like one of those things where she couldn't believe that we hadn't seen this thing. And keep in mind, I love this girl. <laughs> keep in mind, I'm in love with this girl. And uh, she's like, let's go to my house and smoke some weed and I'll show these to you. They're the funniest thing. And so we went to her apartment and uh, we're like standing around. We weren't even sitting. Like We weren't even like sitting on the couch. We were all like standing in front of this TV. It was like... One of the first times I ever saw a TV that you can have the internet on, you know, it's like everybody has those now, where you like watch YouTube on your TV. It was one of the first times I had seen one of those, though. So we're like checking this out, and she's showing us these videos, and it's like a guy in the back seat of a car, and there's something wrong, like with just the way it feels. And my friend, you know, our mutual friend. There's just silence for a second, and me and my friend, we're not laughing. She's laughing, like like the other girl, the girl I love, is laughing. And my friend just says, "Is this a commercial?" And it turned, it was. This girl thought like she had found these commercials. It was like it was for like a car insurance company. It was like, and, and like the commercial was like a guy is sitting in the back seat of the car and there's like three of them. There are three variations of the same commercial. Like, you know how companies will do that where they'll have basically three versions of the same commercial, like the same character doing something really similar, but the dialogue is slightly different. It was one of those sort of things where she showed us like these videos and yeah, they were commercials for like a car insurance company and somehow there was a joke about a guy in the back seat. 
like your, or it was like a car rental company. It was something like that, either like car insurance or a car rental company where there's a guy in the back seat who's like telling you what to do or something. Maybe like, may, I think he might've been like telling them to do bad things. I don't know what it was. Honestly, I have no idea what the joke was because I knew something was wrong. The second she started playing it for us, no matter how stoned and drunk I was, I just knew something was wrong with what I was seeing. And my friend had the insight into it to say, are you showing us commercials? And that became the joke. Like my friend and I like looked at each other and we were just like, holy, like, like it, it suddenly hit home why she told me this girl was a ditz. It suddenly hit home. I was like, oh. She sits at home watching, deliberately watching this commercial on her computer, on her TV, on her TV, on her TV computer. And she laughs hysterically and she thinks it's the funniest thing she's ever seen, which is itself awesome, which is, is itself amazing. Like, that's like taking my principle of not laughing at advertisements or TV commercials and, like, crumpling it up into a ball, ripping it apart, pouring gasoline on it, and burning it. Like, that is like somebody took my principle of not laughing at a commercial and just pissing on it until there's nothing left, until it's just it's so soaked and soggy with piss that it just deteriorates in the wind. You know, I don't, I don't, know, if that, I don't know if that's scientific. I don't know if that's how it works, but, um, it was just, it was an amazing moment because it was just like, she took us back to her apartment with this premise that like she had the funniest video ever to show us. And she showed us a commercial. (laughs) And and I, I still love this girl. I think she's probably married by now. She had a long-term boyfriend. But uh, it was just one of those things where um, I still love her. And I think, you know, honestly, I think that that only improved my feeling that she would should be my wife. But, you know, I'm getting ahead of myself there. But, yeah, I'm just like, oh, my goodness. But, yeah, there are some things that you're principled about. There are some times where you get a, a first taste in your mouth and you can't get past that. There are some things where you just know you won't like it. But I think it's good to test that. I think it's good to test that in yourself, especially if you get too stuck. Because if your principles are working out, like if you have principles, if you have taste, and principles are kind of a form of taste, you know, it's like it's like the life you want to live is going to be informed by your principles. And the life you want to live is also going to be informed by your taste. And to some degree, you can't choose those things because some principles just feel right to you. And the things you like, your taste, often just feels right to you. Uh, But sometimes it's good to test them. Sometimes it's good to, like, you know, see how flexible they really are. And you do that so you don't get stuck because so often we feel stuck. And if you feel stuck but you're not willing to to shake things up or, or push your own boundaries or work past that initial resistance. Cause that's what it is. It's like sometimes you will resist them something. Maybe if I had given those commercials a chance, maybe if that girl, when she showed us those commercials, if I had actually given them a chance, maybe I'd be married to her right now. I mean, I'm happy. I'm happy that I, you know, to be who I am not married, but 
Maybe I'd be married to her right now if I just said, you know what? I'm going to give this joke a chance. I'm going to give this car insurance company a chance to make uh, to make me laugh. And it was something I'd never even heard of either. Like, who knows how this girl even found these things? Because it's like, like, like I said, I watch TV during football season, so I see a good variety of commercials. I don't even think, it wasn't like Geico or something. You know, it wasn't like one of these well-known insurance companies that you see advertisements for all the time. It almost felt like something like local, it felt like a regional insurance company from a different part of the country or something. Like, who knows how she found this. But she had to have sought it out online. Like, it's something she probably saw in passing somewhere, but then she had to, like, seek it out on her own because she had it at the ready. She had it totally ready for us. But anyway, you know, if I'd given it a chance, who knows where I'd be. Maybe all I needed to do was laugh. And I'd be married to that girl. But you know what? I'd probably be stuck watching a lot of things like that, if that were the case. Probably be stuck watching a lot of commercials. Oh, we're, we're one of those commercial couples. We don't just sit around and watch Netflix and order takeout. We also just watch TV commercials and laugh. We laugh. No, but if you can laugh at that stuff, good for you. Like, it's not even a criticism or a judgment. Clearly, I didn't judge her. Clearly, I just I fell ever ever the more in love with her for it. Because, honestly, there was something incredibly cute about the fact that she just watched. She gets stoned for the first... She's, she's a newfound weed smoker. She's a late-in-life weed smoker who sits around watching commercials. Like She probably watches that by herself and just cracks up. That's incredibly cute to me. But I think I you have to be attracted to somebody first <laughs> to, to find that cute. You know, it's one of those things where if, if you saw the wrong person laughing at that, you, know, you might not feel that way. But yeah, getting past your principles while while maintaining your principles. Because I think that's the thing. That's what I want to get at to close this out. Is that sometimes, you know, your your principle is there. And you maintain your principle most of the time. You maintain your taste most of the time. But every once in a while, something gives you the opportunity to kind of test the boundaries of that principle. Without breaking it entirely. Because it's not like, like one guy sent me a spammy message... And, you know, one thing led to another, and I actually checked out what he was telling me about, and I liked it. It's not like I'm going to be, oh, from now on, I'm going to click on every link, every single spam email I get with a link, I'm going to click on it. Every single TV ad, I'm going to laugh at. You know, it's not like my principles change because I, because something defied my principles, you know, it's not like that changed or broke my principles. You know, even though I didn't like the first chapter of this Michael Moorcock book, it doesn't mean my taste has changed. Like, I don't suddenly like absurdist, surreal, old-timey humor involving guys with top hats wearing ascots and having these hoity-toity parties underneath a lake called Lake Billy the Kid where Billy the Kid is referred to as, like, an explorer and a scientist. I'm not even kidding. It described him along the, as something like that. It was, it was like the joke was like that history thinks Billy the Kid is something other than what he is, 
or was. I don't, I don't even know what the joke was. But it's not like I suddenly like that stuff now. It's just that it turns out a really good story was waiting for me several chapters into something that starts with that premise. It turns out that I didn't like the setting. I didn't even like the characters. But a really good, engaging story was waiting just a few chapters in after I got through that. Something to keep in mind. It doesn't change what I like. It doesn't change what I'm attracted to in terms of setting and characters. But it shows that even with a bad taste in my mouth and, and, setting and settings and characters that I don't like. And not that I need to like those things, but just that it's like on an aesthetic level, I couldn't deal with it. But even then, I was able to get through it, and now I'm really happy about it. I'm really happy about this book. So it just it just shows you, though, that it's like it doesn't change your principles. It doesn't change your taste to sometimes go past those things. And, uh, you know, so much of life is that. Making life worthwhile, I think, is in large part a process of doing those two very things. Not to turn this into a big life lesson, but I think, you know, so much in life is doing those two exact things, which is having strong principles, having strong taste that you've developed over a lifetime of experience, but being willing to defy those boundaries and defy that taste by giving things the benefit of the doubt sometimes. That's what it comes down to, having giving things the benefit of the doubt, if I can even say it. But there are also some places you'll just never go to. You will never sit there seeking out commercials to laugh at. I mean, she's the only person I've ever known to do that. The elusive crush that I've had for a decade in Olympia, Washington is a girl who seeks out TV commercials by regional car insurance companies and shares them with people as if they are the funniest thing that she's ever seen and that you need to see. You must see this. This is must-see TV. Must-see TV commercials. You know, that's... uh, She's the only person I've ever known that I know of who's done that. I mean, my mom used to laugh at an occasional TV commercial. A lot of people do. A lot of people do. You know, it's... uh, They've been primarily women, though. That's an interesting thing. Most of the people I've known who laugh at TV commercials have been women. Not that they laugh at every joke. But anyway, just... uh, you know, so there's nothing wrong with people who laugh at TV commercials. Just I just can't do it on principle. Maybe something will break. Maybe the world will break me. And I will be the one. Maybe I will be like my love. My true love. My elusive crush. And I will spend my final days as an old man. I will be an old man. Sitting there watching that very commercial. Maybe I will. It'll be like my rosebud. That's what it's going to be. It's going to be a Citizen Kane sort of thing where, like, my rosebud is going to be this 
regional car insurance commercial that my elusive crush laughed at. And on my deathbed, I'm going to be like, I don't even know what it's called. <laughs> I'm not I'm not even going to have a keyword like Rosebud. For me, it's just going to be like regional car insurance company commercial. And they're just going to be like, oh, he's got dementia. That's going to be my Rosebud. That elusive, my elusive crushes, even more elusive regional car insurance company commercial. And my deathbed request for somebody to find that commercial for me is going to be treated as dementia. Dementia. That's my Rosebud. This land is mine God gave this land to me This brave, this golden land to me And when the morning sun Reveals her hills and plains I see a land where children can run free. 